back to season two of Pussy Talk with Ellie and Madison. Today we are here with Pete Rootmaster, who won the 2018 Iditarod Trail Invitational. The ITI is a human-powered event on the Iditarod Trail. Hi, Pete. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you. So we know that unlike the other people we interview, you ran the Iditarod. Yes. Yes, I'm the dogs in, in, in our race. <laughs> okay. So before we start our interview with you, we are going to test your Iditarod knowledge. We have five Iditarod trivia questions for you. Ready? Yes. Okay. Who won the first Iditarod? Who won? Uh, was it uh, Joe? No, it was... Oh! <laughs> All right, give me a second here. Uh, I think it was because uh, Papa Seavey was second or third. Yeah. And and um, it wasn't Reddington, I don't believe. Um, you stumped me. Um, it's Dick Wilmerth. Right, okay, right. And he passed away recently, I think. Yes, he did. Up there in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, definitely. Okay, so that was the first one. What year was that? I, I'm going to ask a question right back to you. What year was that? Because I don't remember. Uh, we, we don't, don't know. know yet. Okay, there's one for you <laughs> for later. Okay, keep it going. Okay, who has won the most sided rods? Is it, is it a tie between a, a, a good chunk of them? I think Jeff King and Martin Boozer. Um, um, they uh, all Rick, have four. Rick Swenson. Um, yeah, it's Rick Swenson with five. With five, okay. Uh, and I love Rick Swenson. I think he's my kind of musher. He was uh, he he was tough as nails. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Who founded the fr- Iditarod? Joe Reddington, and and he was also he was also an advocate for multi-use on the trails. Yeah. I love that. He was also one that knew that. For the Iditarod that thrived, they had to host some other events and have some other athletes on the on the trail. So I like to think that he would have been very happy with with the human powered uh, what's happened with the human powered races. Yep, you you answered it right. Okay. Okay. How many dogs can a musher start with this year? I if it's like it's been in the previous few years, it's they start with sixteen and then are able to drop dogs as they go. Well, this year they changed the rules, and they start with 14. With 14 dogs. Okay, okay. That's, uh, that's a lot of dogs. Um, I'm glad that I just have to take care of myself out there. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, um, now we're gonna, um, going to move on to just some regular questions. Okay, great. Can you explain to the listeners what the Iditarod Trail Invitational is? Sure, it's a it's a human powered ultra event. So what that means is either you run the event, you bike the event, or you cross country ski the event. So it, and it's a it's either 150 miles, 350 miles, or a thousand miles all the way to Nome. Oh wow. 
And so we go a week before the dogs annually. So that's our start is uh, is always one week before the dogs. So I usually get passed by the, the lead teams. Uh, I'm roughly about 400 or 500 miles into the race when I start seeing the dog teams out there. Oh, yeah? Which one did you do? I, I This has been my fifth year in a row doing the race, and I finally was able to, to finish and get to know them on foot. So this was my first time accomplishing that. But I started out doing the 350 mile to McGrath, which, as you guys know, is a, a checkpoint in the Iditarod. So, uh, there, you know, that I did that a few years and really got my bearings and learned how to take care of myself up there on the trail and then put it all together this year and got to know. Mm hmm. OK, so what got you interested in wanting to run 1000 miles across Alaska? Well, I, you know, I've, I've had Iditarod dreams since I've probably been y'all's age. Um, uh, when I read the story about Balto and I started learning about the Iditarod uh, when I was in middle school. And so I've had dreams of running the Iditarod since then. Um, and I even moved up to Alaska and worked for the Seavies for, for a few winters up in Alaska running sled dogs. And so all along, I thought I'd get there uh, with a sled team. But uh, I, I kind of kind of came to find that I like kind of taking care of myself and, and uh, it's tough for me to take care of all the moving parts. That's a dog team. So it's uh, so I've, I, you know, getting to know them, I always thought I'd have dogs and I didn't, and that's okay. I kind of found my own path, I guess. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really cool. Who or what inspired you to get into this kind of racing? Well, uh, so, so I, you know, obviously I said, you know, I was really interested in the Iditarod, but then, um, you know, moved back to the lower 48, uh, thinking that I probably wasn't going to be able to do it with, do with dogs. And so, um, I decided to, uh, after that, I got into ultra running. Uh, so I started running really long distance races. Uh, you know, you're talking 50 mile races and hundred mile races and 200 mile endurance running events. And, and then one day I was reading an article about this race that happened up in Alaska called the Iditarod Trail Invitational, and uh, kind of the rest is history. I was involved in it the ne very next year after I read about it, and, and uh, it's been a it's been a big part of my life since then. So it's been a getting to Nome has been a huge dream of mine, uh, and I'm just so so thankful I was able to uh, put it all together with the with the help of many people, you know. Our teacher, Miss E. Montgomery, she does ultra racing. Yeah, great. So, so, uh, so that's what I am. You know, that's what I am. I'm an ultra runner. So that's that's kind of what got me into the long distance. But I didn't know that there was this uh, that there was this uh, ultra race up on the Iditarod Trail. So for me, it was kind of a second chance at Iditarod dreams. You know, so I, I was just thrilled to to learn and to. Uh, you know, and, and have interactions with the mushers. I, I would consider a lot of them dear friends of mine because I see them every year. And uh, there's some there's some fun interactions between our athletes and, and the mushers, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you have to quit your job or go on leave during the race? You know, I, um, I consider myself an adventurer and a stay-at-home dad. 
So luckily, uh, my wife kind of stepped up and, and took care of the kids a little bit more while I was gone. But it's kind of a team effort uh, as far as my family goes. I'm a family man. And in fact, right now, as I speak to you, I'm in pickup line for my girls. And so um, so I, the, the girls are a big part of my life. And so luckily, I've kind of made a lifestyle of being able to do these type of events and then when I'm back home, just step into the role of taking care of my girls. So it's an interesting lifestyle, but it seems to work for, for our family. That's sweet. Did you want to quit at any time during the race? Uh, so many times. Uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you even a number of how many times I wanted to quit. But uh, as I got further along the trail, I realized it was just going to be harder and harder for me to quit because I was that close, you know. Um, I, I, but but the, the thing about it, and you all will understand this, is even when you're, you know, let's say you're 800 miles into the race, uh, you, you still have 200 miles. 200 miles is still a really, really long time. And I think people, you know, your fans that aren't out there, they don't understand how hard that 200 miles can be. And some people talk about it like, oh, you're so close. You only have 200 miles. And mm-hmm. <laughs> meanwhile, you're out there going, well, oh, it's just tough to get one mile in at this point. And, yeah. uh, it just gets really, really, really difficult. And in blue, you go through a lot of different emotions. Um, I had a lot of low points. I had a lot of high points. Um, I, it's just, it was a beautiful experience for me. Okay, so when you were racing, what survival gear did you bring? So I'll tell you what, what I usually have in my sled is obviously food, water, um, and a lot of times you can't carry water because it's so cold that it will freeze. And so you have to carry gas to make water, uh, just like the mushers do a lot of times. And so, um, I'll have that, I'll have emergency gear. I had a minus 50 sleeping bag, definitely extra gear, extra clothes, extra socks, extra hats, extra mittens, extra gloves. I had a satellite phone. Um, and this is all in my in my sled. So I had about forty pounds of gear that I that I hauled, and then you know I would try and restock at checkpoints like the mushers do. Okay, so um, you said that you got to bring a phone. Did you use it at all? I used my satellite phone a lot. Um, that was kind of my connection to the outside world while I was in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness. And so, um, that was, I, I talked to my brother a lot. He was kind of, uh, he helped me kind of through some times, you know, I would call him when I'm down or, um, you know, and, and, and just kind of touch base with him. So that was a, a nice option to have, um, uh, regular cell phones don't work real well, especially in the cold. And so sometimes even the, the sat phones don't. But uh, but it was nice to know also that in an emergency, um, I could have I could have used it and called for some help if it would have got that bad. Okay, so can you tell us more about when you fell into the river? Oh, I knew this was coming. I knew this was coming, <laughs> girls. Uh, <laughs> um, this would this would have been 2016, and it was my first uh, attempt at the thousand mile I did ride. So I was 200 miles in. I had gone over Rainy Pass, and I was coming down to Rhone, 
which is a 200 miles into the race. That's the wilderness checkpoint. Mm -hmm. And there's a river called the Tatina River. And uh, it's always really sketchy and scary for mushers and, and even more so uh, us on foot. And so I went over a what, what they call a bridge, an ice bridge, over yeah. a, a open running river. And I was going over the middle of it and the whole entire bridge collapsed. And I went into the water over my head and had to climb out and barely made it out. I mean, it was a, a really, really close call. And so that was, uh, I will say, probably the scariest moment of my life happened there on that river. And so it was tough because this year, you know, I had to go and go right back over that same spot and uh, and kind of address the fears that it takes to go go through it again and, and got through it. But that was... Um, I know no one has died on the, there's been some dog deaths on the Iditarod Trail, but no human has died. And I think I was, you know, millimeters from being the first. So it was pretty mm -hmm. scary, but it was also something that I got through and I was okay. So I, I, I kept going 300 miles after that scare and then got halfway to Ruby and realized that there's no way I had what it took to go another 500 miles on foot. So I flew home and that was one of the years I quit. And so I made it out with my life, which was great, but I also failed in what I was going up there to do. So that kind of kept the fire burning for me to give it another try. That's amazing. It must have been tough. Yeah, uh, stupid or tough. I'm not sure which one. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would have a lot of people probably say both about me. But no, I uh, I got through. I got through it okay, and and, and think of it as just a big uh, learning experience. And and uh, I was glad to make it out okay. And and uh, and and I ultimately I made some really good decisions after it happened to get me safe. And so that you know it, it didn't throw me off guard too much. And so I was happy with the way I dealt with it. That gave me confidence to put myself into similar situations in, in later years. Now, I will say last year, we dealt with minus 60 on the trail. Wow. So we had awful weather last year, and no one decided to go past McGrath on foot. So I, I quit again. I made it 350 miles and quit last year. So you girls have to understand, and you're, you know the, the listeners have to understand that it's not just about the Iditarod Championship and winning it or something. It's it's all those years of failing, or, or my first year I got last place, and so you know I, I'm very open about the fact that it was a journey for me. It wasn't just all about winning the Iditarod. There was many learning experiences and, and, and tough chapters in my story too before I was able to get to know them. So I think that resonates with people because they like to see when people fail, you know, how they get back up, you know. Wow. Okay. So um, how, did you, how do you get dry and warm up? Well, you know, most of the time you're not dry and you're not warm. And that's just the reality <laughs> of, of, of what we do. Um, I usually I'm pretty wet because I'm sweating anyway, oh. you know, it's, it's hard to think of that, but you know, I'm working so much, you know, I'm usually on my feet about 18 hours a day. Wow. Um, and so, um, you know, and when you're really working hard, you're, you know, you're building up a sweat, even if it's super cold out. Um, so I would usually stay wet and cold. Now, when you get to the checkpoints, Boy, those are the best because you're able to go in and dry your gear and 
restock your, you know, recharge your things if you need to and eat a real meal. And so those little aid stations are like, what I did a lot was I didn't think about getting to Nome. I thought about all the little checkpoints that I needed to get to. And those were like my little micro goals or my little goals that, that put all put together got me to Nome. But it wasn't, you know, I didn't think about the enormity of it while I was out there. It was just, but, but um, a lot of times those checkpoints were just the best thing in the world. They were like <laughs> five-star resorts to me when I got there, you know? Wow. Um, did you have any problems with animals, wild animals, along the way? You know, I've, I, I, I will say I had kind of a tense moment with a, with a bull moose. Um, uh, as I was getting into one of the checkpoints, he was kind of lingering outside of town and kind of wouldn't give up the trail to me. Um, but I, I knew enough to not press it very much. I just kind of uh, stood back and kind of let him make the decision when he wanted to get off the trail. Um, and, and it wasn't, you know, I never felt like it was really like, you know, going to be a thing. But but he certainly knew I was there and wasn't moving for me. Um, that was a little bit unnerving. Uh, and I also, which is, this is kind of an interesting story, but, uh, and I don't know how many of your readers know this or listeners know this, but there, there's a lot of people that still trap, you know, that run trap lines on the Iditarod Trail. So they're trapping for, for animals. And um, I, I got to a checkpoint one night and I could tell that some of the racers were fired up that already there. And I asked them what the deal was. And I guess there was a giant bobcat that had been caught in one of the traps that was still alive and making all kinds of wild noise and uh, and really scared a lot of racers because here it is the middle of the night and you turned your corner and all of a sudden there's this bobcat that's that you think is wild, but really it's in a trap. And so, um, but I, you know, somehow I missed it. I didn't even see it. So every other racer saw it, but me, which only leads me to believe that I probably walked within, you know, a foot of the thing and didn't even realize it, whether I was listening to music or, or just deep in thought or, or whatever. But, uh, that was a little unnerving to know something that size was that close to the trail. And, uh, but, but, you know, people have seen, uh, Wolverines, which I think is great. Wow. Uh, they're, they're really cool animals. Um, I definitely saw some wolves and I saw some um, some eyes. Like you look in the woods sometimes yeah. and you see the eyes of some wolves, which is almost cooler than seeing the wolves themselves. It's just looking and seeing them kind of checking you out while you're you know on the Yukon River or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, so they're around, but it's, um, it's like a mutual respect. I, I feel like they don't want to mess with us too much and, and vice versa. We certainly don't want to mess with them too much. And so I don't even bring a gun or anything for protection up there on the trail. Yeah. Wow. That seems pretty scary. It can be, it can be, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of that, that type of person that just, you know, kind of puts myself out there and if something's meant to happen, then it happens. You know, I, you can't control that. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, luckily those big bears are sleeping that's one thing i will say is you know if the if there's a bunch of grizzly bears around the trail uh, i'd be a lot more scared but luckily we do this race in february and march when they're still sleeping so that's one less thing i have to worry about but you know if there was grizzlies I, that'd be i don't know i don't i don't know that i'd put myself out there as much as i do for sure Mhm. okay so um do you think that you would run the idea trail again 
know, I, I don't think I'll do it on foot again. Uh, that You know, a lot of times it's just I, I cannot explain to y'all how miserable and how tough it is to do that. I think there's been uh, 17 or 18 people uh, that have done that ever. And there's a, there's a really good reason why that number is so low because it's very, very, very difficult. And you have to commit a lot to the effort it takes and, uh, and so I don't know that I'll do it on foot again. I'll never say never, but I don't see myself doing it on foot. But I'm very intrigued by doing it on bikes. These, these folks do it on fat tire bikes, and they have a blast on the Iditarod Trail. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's just as hard because they, if there's snow, they have to push their bikes. You can't ride through the snow like that. But if there's a flat, good trail, those people can make really good time. And so I'm in, I'm intrigued by maybe doing it by, by bike again sometime. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm just very content with reaching a goal and kind of moving on. You know, I, I definitely like the, um, the like we just got announced who's going to be at the race next year. And my name's not on the list. And, I'm you know, I'm OK with that. You know, I feel like um, finishing and, and certainly walking away with the champion it's a good it's a good time to walk away you know it's um i i i, I you know it's kind of the end of a chapter end of a story in, in a way mm-hmm. the next part of our show we call brain freeze we have five would you rather questions for you to answer you ready <laughs> bring it okay would you rather watch batman or superman uh superman would you rather use mechanical pencil or regular pencil? Regular pencil. Would you rather eat fast food or homemade food? Homemade food. Would you rather have an iPhone or a Samsung? <sighs> iPhone. Would you rather use Spotify or Pandora to listen to music? Pandora. We are asking this question to all of our guests. If you could go on a long run with anybody, living or dead, who would you choose and why? Oh, man. Um, probably uh, Ernest Shackleton, uh, because he's an endurance hero of mine, his story. And uh, I, I, look, I, I look up to a lot of people that have done a lot of things much tougher than I have in an era where it was a lot more difficult for them. Okay, so we have one more. What is your favorite song? My favorite song is probably Stir It Up, Bob Marley. Well, congratulations on winning the I Did Rod, and it was awesome to talk to you today. And thank you for taking your time out of your day to come to talk on our podcast. You all rock. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to our guest, Pete Ripmaster, for being on our show this week. Subscribe. Subscribe to us on iTunes and tune in next week. We should also give credit to Hobo Jim for our theme song, the I Did It All Chill song. And now enjoy a clip from Pete's favorite song, Stir It Up by Bob Marley.